Hello and welcome to the SciComm JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communication approaches. At SciComm JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication context in a way that scientists can easily implement. Our team is small, but we are extremely motivated. We are constantly positively influenced by our growing network of enthusiastic scientists and science communicators. Thank you for being part of our vision-driven efforts. Today, we have behind the mics Sherry, Heather, Maria, and Mina Vena, and a very special guest. So why don't we all introduce ourselves, ourselves with a few words. Sherry, why don't you start? Sure. Hi, I am Sherry. I'm a biology professor and I'm also founder and managing editor of Psychom JC, which has provided me with the privilege of working with an awesome, awesome team. Heather? My name is Heather Conklin and um, I am one of the newer Psychom JC members. I'm actually a political scientist and policy nerd uh, and I do work around civic engagement as civic leadership including how to talk about science to build capacity and public engagement. Hi guys, I'm Maria, located in Los Angeles, originally from Ukraine. I received my PhD in global health just a year ago and right now I'm a research associate for a university research center here in town. Awesome, and my name is Nevena Christosba. I'm joining out of Brussels. Uh, I'm a molecular biologist, turning science communicator, and I currently work in the field of food safety. And today, uh, for a second time in our show, actually, we have a very special guest. Sherry, how about you first tell us on how come we have a guest today, and then we can have him introduce himself. Sure. Earlier this year, we decided that um, we needed to kind of do something to reach out to the science community and also try to encourage them to have a direction and a plan for their science communication efforts. So we started the State Your Mission Challenge and we challenged the science community to write a mission statement for uh, their science communication and we gave them instructions and uh, we basically collected 20 really fantastic submissions. Uh, and one of them was Marx. He just blew away with his unique background and the unique things and perspective that he brings. So he was an honorable mention. And we're just so excited that this challenge helped us find Mark. Mark, how about you introduce yourself for our listeners? Well, thank you, Davina. My name is Mark Smith. I'm retired military, uh, currently a full-time student pursuing a degree in sustainable agriculture with the objective of continuing to serve by uh, trying to overcome some of the obstacles and and ultimately feed the world. Uh, My goal is to become a soil scientist and uh, work with soil and water. Um, I've had the privilege of performing or in various capacities in many disaster response operations. And those were always some of the most challenging issues. If you could tackle those issues, you probably had the time to to uh, solve the others. And it's my privilege to be here and I can't thank you all enough for the opportunity. Thank you so much to coming on the podcast and thank you very much for participating in our Twitter chat last week, which was awesome. 
So how about Heather and Mark, since uh, you were the main hosts in a way of this Twitter chat, walk us to how come and what was the topic that you got together in that chat? So our topic was pretty broad uh, this week for our Twitter chat. We actually covered a lot of ground and we explored the unexplored, um, which was kind of awesome. So we started with the article, um, we started with an article and the focus of the article was, you know, does risk communication shape the public's perceptions of scientists' beliefs, especially around polarized issues like climate change? And do that, does that influence the perceptions of like the scientists trust and credibility. So basically how do audience members think about the political orientation of the scientist who's actually doing the risk communication and does that affect like how they see them? Are they trustworthy um, and are they credible? And those were the things that we explored uh, in this article. And then we went into Mark's story because I think that this is something that's a really interesting link. So the, the summary of the article really um, was it found a couple of interesting things. It was based on an experimental design um, and really it was about uh, members of the public rating a fictional scientist um, like op-ed piece on one of four issues, um, two of those being polarized issues, which uh, was climate change and marijuana. And then the other is two issues was flu and severe weather, which were inherently con considered non-polarizing issues. Um, and so what they found through this though was that when a scientist addresses like the risks of a polarizing issue like climate change or marijuana, for instance, uh, the public tends to perceive that scientist as being a member of the political group that's associated with that issue. So for climate change, that tends to be considered a quote unquote liberal issue or democratic issue. And then for marijuana, that was considered a conservative or Republican issue. And what they found also was that liberal conservative members of the public, they both, they both make assumptions about the political orientation of the science, scientist when they perceive the views of the scientist as being different from their own. And I think that different from their own piece is really key. But the good news is that overall, the public tends to see scientists as pretty moderate in their political orientations. So they're not necessarily seen as political actors inherently, um, but there's definitely some judgment from the personal end. Um, and finally, conservatives actually did have a greater tendency to relate perceptions of the scientist's credibility to the issue uh, which with he or she was communicating. So they perceived greater credibility towards the scientists when the issue that the scientist was addressing actually reinforced their views. And then on the flip side, less credibility though, when the scientist was addressing an issue that challenged their views. So basically the, the overarching takeaway from this is that it suggests that communicating risk, particularly to a conservative audience, has to really address that issue of trust between the scientist and the audience. I mean, we get back to that trust issue. It's come up a couple of times in our Twitter chats. It's come up in our discussions on podcasts. And so that question of how do you actually build connection and trust between scientists communicating and the audience members that are listening uh, is a big issue. <laughs> That's the million dollar question in science communication, isn't it? If people don't trust you, whatever efforts you put, they wouldn't, they wouldn't listen and they wouldn't have the take home message that you want them to have. Um, so then it's very interesting that this particular article actually got very interestingly connected to the stories of our very own Maria and to Mark. Um, how about you to share how you relate to, to the findings of, of this article and in general what has been discussed in the Twitter chat? 
Sure, sure. You know what? I'm going to limit my little story to about two minutes because I could ramble on. In fact, I've been thinking of writing on this before and I just couldn't find a way to summarize my experience. So here we go. <clears throat> just a bit of background. I was a science skeptic and how I ended up in science communication. So I became a science skeptic through the best of intentions. I got very health conscious and I just wanted to take care of myself and eat better. So I became a raw vegan um, proponent, not just somebody who ate that way, but I went around the country. I got certified as a chef. I took workshops and classes on this topic. So I was really involved. And to, for, the first thing you do when you become part of kind of alternative health movement is you start suspecting and rejecting even official dietary advice as being good, obviously, because it goes against what you're trying to do. And that's true if you're paleo or raw vegan or whatever alternative diet you're into. And then you suddenly start questioning other types of health advice, vaccines, medical procedures, the entire health industry, the government, and you can hear that conspiracy status shortly thereafter, and that's not a good and rational way to think. Mm -hmm. So I found myself being quite a science skeptic, including vaccines, health information. So you, you get the picture. And my journey to science communication then involved two main things. First, formal education, as I went to get my master's in health promotion and then PhD in global health. And the th second thing, I think what really tipped me over the edge was meeting people that I respected, I considered knowledgeable on the topic and, and well-meaning, so we were similar in what mattered to us as people, and realizing they might have an opposing view from me. That was really hard to reconcile, thinking, how come you're great, but we see uh, this issue about health in a completely different light? And actually, I had, it was a very specific encounter that um, really tipped me over. It was a very <laughs> vivid shift. And it, that was talking to Kevin Folta at Arizona State University about GMOs. I never thought I would change my mind on the topic. I was extremely negative. It's a very controversial topic for a lot of people, health conscious or not. And realized I realized that I was quite biased in how I perceived risks in this topic, realizing how much I didn't actually know and understand and how important it is to rely on experts in learning more. And that really opened my eyes to the anti-science bias I was still carrying, even into my second year of my PhD degree. So since then, I became very passionate about communicating science because I felt like I just understand the other side. I don't go and say, hey, you're just uneducated or you're stupid. I understand that they're coming to this conclusion sometimes with the best of intentions. Here's my little story. I'm done. Brilliant. Thank you. So Mark, I want to hear about Mark's story. We heard a little taster on the Twitter chat, but I want to hear the whole thing. How did you go from being a science skeptic to sitting here and doing science communication with us? Well, it's, uh, it's occurred over a long period of time, I think. So grew up in rural West Texas, uh, lived in Alaska for a few years uh, when I was younger. Uh, the son of a very conservative family, you know, going back many generations. So always outdoors, uh, always in the environment in one way, shape, or form, you know, associated with hunters, farmers, different things. So always followed probably blindly, uh, you know, a more conservative ideology and what, what came from the conservative party. So I probably considered myself a Republican at the time. Um, and I didn't hear anything coming from that side of the party other than, you know, the original, some of the original uh, 
communications, you know, the development of the EPA by Nixon and, you know, different things like that. So at some point, I later learned uh, there was a shift in, in terminology. So fast forward years later, I'm in the military. I, I served almost 30 years, performed a lot of disaster response. And over a period of time, I noticed what I believe to be an increase in coastal related natural disasters. So as I started hearing more about climate change and global warming, I began to question my perception and my beliefs about what I perceived and decided to research it myself. So part of my conservative upbringing was uh, look into things ourselves. And I think we see this in some of the conservative political side of the house. You get uh, probably more varied candidates, you know, during a, an election. So. I was always taught to vote more for the individual than uh, than a party. Uh, you know, be be critical and don't just blindly believe everything. And I did the, my research, and it seemed to conclude that in fact there was significant increase in coastal related natural disasters as a direct result of climate change. So then I began to question why. Now fast forward a little bit further, I. Uh, uh, for reasons very similar to Maria's, and I hope to talk to her offline about that later, but I became very interested in health and food, and and uh, I've got a grandson that's slightly autistic, and my daughter had done a significant amount of research into uh, uh, you know, what could have caused that, what, what transpired and led to that. So concurrently, I'm developing a, an interest in food and agriculture at the same time. My, my military work is developing an interest in soil and water and access to clean, clean water and, and uh, uh, you know, trying to stabilize regions that are uh, being rocked for many, many reasons. And I reached the conclusion that, uh, in fact, there are many things leading to climate change, but most likely uh, human involvement, human impact. And then I found a college that was uh, environmentally focused. So I'm proud to say I'm a student at uh, Unity College here in Unity, Maine, billed as uh, America's environmental college. Uh, I've got to put a disclaimer out. I, I think they would want me to say that my views are mine and not theirs. But we've got, a, we've got an interesting mix of what we call hunters and huggers. So uh, kind of American euphemism for tree huggers and hunters. And... Uh, it really inspires some some really critical debate between the two that I, I find invigorating, actually. So as part of my requirements, I chose to take an environmental communications course because I never thought of myself as, as being a proponent for science communication. And then uh, we had a, a, a fantastic professor that uh, inspired something in myself that I never really knew existed as far as uh, communications and uh, found that I love it and kind of tipped my toe in the water. As you all know, I'm, I'm not the best with technology. So the professor inspired me to kind of work with pictographs and do some certain things. Um, and ultimately I thought, you know, I'm going to try this, this uh, Psycom challenge and uh, uh, see what people think because I had continually run into roadblocks when I try and approach the subject of uh, environmental communication, uh, predominantly when I spoke with more liberal folks. Now, I found that I think uh, at some point in time, the uh, Republican Party had diverged from 
science and environmental science uh, for reasons unknown to me. So I kind of felt a little betrayed there. And I'm now a, a liberal. So for many reasons, not just the environmental or not liberal, sorry, uh, independent. So I'm a registered libertarian. I, I still consider myself a conservative. And I'm kind of back to my original upbringing of uh, research candidates and, and things uh, independently of, of whatever a, a top-down approach is. And I've had the privilege of uh, developing quite a tool bag, culturally speaking, with the overseas response. And I've, I've come to the conclusion that a lot of our challenges in environmental communications are the exact same challenges we faced overseas uh, with disaster response, whether it be natural disaster, uh, strike, you know, uh, conflict, uh, disaster resulting from conflict. And the biggest challenge is, um, as we discussed in the Twitter chat, not to look at things with American eyes, but to come in and understand the cultural nuances and, and outlook from each participant within that group. And I believe what we've been doing is uh, politicizing science communication when we need to be culturalizing science communication. That's just brilliant, Mark. I, those are both stories definitely worth sharing. And I'm really happy that we have you both on the podcast. And I know that we all have lots of questions. So how about Heather starts first? Okay, I have like a million questions. This is so exciting to me. I'm sitting here just like getting excited uh, behind my mic. Well, I guess, you know, I mean, this question is really for for both Maria and for Mark, but um, you, you both mentioned this, like questioning your perceptions when you heard information that maybe didn't match what you had thought. Is this idea of skepticism, is that like a personality trait? Like how would somebody learn that? Because as a science communicator, don't we kind of want to cultivate that, especially among people who may be uncertain about their views and maybe they're like leaning in sort of the, you know, skeptical of science, maybe just not trusting the evidence and they're, they're not quite sure how to think about that. So how do you teach that healthy skepticism to actually question everything um, and then really make your own choice? I think that it's something we need to cultivate with the recognition that not everybody is going to agree with, with, with our views. I mean, human nature is human nature. It's been that way for thousands and thousands of years. And we're going to continually run up, uh, like, for example, I'm going to pull up on my, on my uh, website, uh, internet rather. I've got a website uh, that discusses 31,000 scientists that oppose climate change. So regardless of how we communicate within the scientific community, there is, uh, there is not a, a, a complete alignment of their beliefs. So part of our skepticism has to involve our personal experiences. And I believe has to come from the grassroots, the bottom level up. And if, so uh, there's a horse riding ring. I live in a town of about 1,700 folks. Horse riding ring, it's been there for 40 years. Uh, Folks are very resistant to change. The town selectmen very resistant to change. Now, this horse ring, which is next to a stream, continues to flood uh, repeatedly. So they're looking for another one. The town uh, selectmen are very resistant to, to finding new land for this horse ring. This group is a social group, but they do some really good things. Uh, equine therapy with uh, disabled children, disabled veterans, different things like that. And now we compare that with the Paris Climate Accord. We've seen there, there seemed to be momentum for then following an election now uh, uh, a move away from. 
So my perception is that uh, anything pushed from the top down is going to be subject to change and continual change until we get buy-in from the majority of the people. And this, uh, in the, the book I discussed with the uh, operational culture, they discuss this, and it's one of the things we have to address overseas. And a lot of this takes time. So if I can plant the seed in these, uh, in the folks of these uh, conservatives who do not believe in the climate change, who realize that uh, that horse ring has been there for 40 years, uh, I may or may not be successful in my in my recommendations and the, the material I'm going to bring that they move this ring somewhere else so they're not continually spending money that can be better spent elsewhere. Uh, but if nothing else, maybe I'll plant the seed when they go to the book, they'll be skeptical enough to question even what they're hearing from within their own ideological construct, you know, their own culture. So. I don't know if I confused anybody with that or not, but uh, that was just one local example. And I think uh, uh, what we've learned overseas in disaster response is if we can, if we can get that, widen the aperture of, of the participants, we have a better chance of long lasting or sustainable success instead of pushing down sudden change regardless of how right or wrong that sudden change may be, regardless of how necessary it may or may not be, uh, our goal should be a sustainable change, a long lasting change. And I, I just don't see that happening right now. So Maria, that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Mark. That is a great story to illustrate. And hey, so Maria, I wanted to you know, find out and see what you think about the question too, because Mark said some really interesting stuff. So I want to see what you got on your mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I keep going back to, you know, my own example, obviously my own experience with health specifically, and skepticism is so crucial. And, you know, I got into anti-science by being very skeptical of official information and didn't realize I should have applied that to what I was thinking now too, right? So how do you cultivate people who have alternative views or anti-science to be skeptical of their existing perceptions as well? Uh, it comes sometimes from experience of finding examples when you believe something is true is not. Uh, that's very hard to do. A really quick example, one of my shifts from anti-science was realizing that the stuff I was teaching about raw veganism was based on a bunch of um, information repeated by a lot of uh, proponents that was not true. It was simply not there in uh, scientific evidence. And that really upset me. And I thought, well, wait a second. So I had to suddenly question what I was thinking, go back and realize, okay, there's holes in this kind of approach to life and health as well. And now I need to address that. So how do you make more people skeptical? I suppose give them examples of when both the scientific information can have issues and uh, more alternative viewpoints can have very important problems. So if you can find those examples, that's great to use. Okay. Um, Mark, you mentioned something that captured my attention. That's because one of my, our goals here is to help scientists become uh, better communicators. And you mentioned that you, when you try to have a conversation about uh, climate change or science communication, whatever, with liberals, you uh, ran into roadblocks. I'd like to hear what kind of roadblock that is, because... Um, Again, we are trying to help people to get out of their echo chambers and start listening to other people rather than just regurgitating the same science communication things they've been saying for the past 20 years. Yeah, well, uh, thanks. I think that's a fantastic 
question, and it's one that came up in my environmental communications class. Because uh, we all perceive ourselves to be one way. We, we, I think all humans are predominantly good. They want to do the right thing for the most part. So uh, regardless of ideology, I think the, the folks that are entrenched more on the left uh, knew that they had a good heart and are firmly convinced that what they're doing is right. So I was tasked with reading uh, some, or excuse me, watching some videos that were posted on uh, the environmental change. And, and there was a series of videos, and I'm, it's tough to describe it verbally, but I can send you all the links. And I did a snapshot, which I captured for the, uh, the class, because this actually happened to be an online course uh, done over the summer. And uh, some of the responses were evil Republicans. Uh, Republicans are uh, the uh, death to the environment and, and things like that. So somewhere along the lines, just as the Republican Party had decided, made a conscious decision to shift and reverse their position on the environment, somewhere the Democratic Party or the more liberal side of the House here in the United States made the same conscious decision to use that as a, a rallying cry for those folks. When I have slowly come to believe that we have people across both camps and if we can be apolitical in our environmental approach, we have a better chance of creating that sustainable uh, impact. Because if people aren't willing to talk to you about the environment because of other ideological beliefs that are that that kind of the environment is couched under then we're not ever going to make any long-lasting changes uh, in, in for the betterment of the environment um there is i don't know if you've heard about it or not there is a book it's called the righteous mind why people are divided by religion and politics um have you heard about that i have not but i'm going to write that down so if you hear paper shuffling Yes. Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic book because that was one, one book that was really eye-opening as a liberal. I proudly call myself a liberal. And it just helps you, uh, and it also helps you understand where conservatives are coming from in terms of the moral foundations of their views. Uh, and if you ever get to read it, which I hope you do, I'd love to hear your viewpoint about what it says there about, about the conservatives. I would, I would promise you I will read it and I will reach out to you on that because uh, one of the things that I found in written in a textbook, or in fact, our environmental communications textbook, and, and I mention it since you brought up the, uh, the, the religious aspect, it had a section there on uh, how Christians view the environment as more of a, I'm going to paraphrase, but it's God's will, so there's nothing they can do about it, which was very different from my experience. So my reality was very different than what was printed in this textbook. And it made me wonder where they got the data from. So I'd done some search and I think uh, Heather received a, a link that I'd sent to a study done at Yale where they, they, uh, they only hit about 12,000 people for the, uh, the assessment. And I also wondered then where that, was that a coastal group or, or did they include folks from the more rural environment such as I came up in? Are you referring to YPCCC, the Yale Project for Climate Change Communication? Yes, ma'am. Yes, yeah, ma'am. Their work is mostly on surveys. They've, they've done an incredible amount of work, but it's mostly on, based on online surveys and things like that. So 
the data that they have has been quite helpful in helping people understand the spectrum in which climate change communication views are. But I mm -hmm. see your point about, uh, I personally see weaknesses in uh, using surveys. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to jump in. I, this is such an interesting discussion and the, the nerdy you know, political kid in me is all excited again. Um, so I just wanted to actually go back to kind of what you had said, Mark, about, um, again, your experience in sort of noticing the different trends among people who are conservative and religious and sort of how they perceive these issues and how they start to think about them or, you know, again, um, pay attention to certain evidence and just let other evidence slide. And I think that there's something that's really fundamental, especially for science communicators here, and it's that uh, there's a lot of public opinion research in political science um, that really talks about how people believe, how they cultivate their political identities, um, whether it's ideology, party identification, or whatnot. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to it's their sense of self that's part of that. And so that party ID or ideology, so however they consider themselves, whether it's liberal or conservative, Republican, Democrat, whatever, it really becomes part of their identity because it's how they were raised. Socialization plays a huge role in how we you know, find our own views um, and really are those our own views or were those things that we were just raised with and that we're exposed to and surrounded by all the time. And so it gets to this fundamental question of self-identity. And I think that that's something that as science communicators and especially uh, as, you know, superhero science communicators of former science skeptics now who are scientists doing science communication, really when we reach out, remember that if you're talking to somebody who's uncomfortable or skeptical, you know, know that there may be that element of you might actually be challenging their personal core values. Um, and so keeping that in mind and building the communication around that instead of just sort of like the facts don't agree, it's that, you know, when you have these conversations with some people, it's going to be, it's going to be challenging um, because that is a self-identity construct there. Um, and I think that that's just wild when we start thinking about how we're discussing these very, you know, these very, what are now politicized issues too. So that's just kind of my thinking on that. Um, I'm curious to see what you all think about that. <laughs> well, Heather, I happen to think you're spot on. Uh, hence my cultural, you know, my digging back into some of my, cult, some of my cultural textbooks. So that, uh, that self-identity and directly ties into, you know, the culturalization. So uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm -hmm. I have a, a quick question for Mark. If okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, Mark, did you feel like your trust in scientists shifted? So if you wanted to do your research earlier in your life, would you have believed the studies you saw? Or maybe your being able to trust them followed your personal observations that made you doubtful in the first place? To be honest with you, I, I don't know, but I would have to guess I probably would not have, if I'm being totally honest. And, and quite frankly, that's one of the things that led me to become uh, a desire to become and, and work towards becoming a scientist myself so that perhaps I'll have some credibility coming from a rural background to speak and break through some of these cultural barriers. Uh, one example that I came across in class and I've communicated him with a, a few times, he's a friend of a friend, but I highly recommend folks check his website out, is Nick Mullins, uh, the thoughtful coal miner. So. He's addressing some of those exact issues in Appalachia, uh, a region that's historically been downtrodden and poor, sometimes, you know, earlier in our country, some of the poorest of the poor. 
heavily reliant on coal mining. And we're still shocked, everybody that lives outside of Appalachia, on why they're so resistant to trust certain things. So uh, my professor actually had a chance to speak with them and, and talk to them about that very topic of why people within Appalachia would trust someone from Appalachia more or before they would trust someone from outside the region. And I really think that uh, he's done far more work and research on that, has far more experience on that specific topic than I do. So I would highly recommend uh, reaching out to him because I think he'd be fantastic to talk to in, in some future podcast episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I have, an, I have a question actually for Mark and for Maria, but really for everybody here too. Um, as former science skeptics that, you know, who are now doing science communication and are practicing, you know, actively practicing science, do, does that make you somehow more relatable, especially to those audiences that may be more resistant to hearing about different aspects of science or necessarily buying into that, you know, into the evidence on the front end? Does your experience and your perspective make you more relatable and better communicators ultimately for that? And what skills do you bring to science communication that maybe those of us that don't have that background may not have? Well, I, I think they do. Uh, in fact, uh, my, my professor, uh, the environmental communications professor, has uh, stated that he feels there's a dire need for more conservative environmental uh, communication. Uh, but I think one of the challenges we have is, is we need to define some of these concepts more clearly and remove any subjective views that are going to be shaped by the different cultures. So we've seen the involvement of climate change, for example. Uh, one of the things I did in the class was I looked on the different U.S. government websites, whether it be NOAA, uh, USGS. Uh, all of these entities have different definitions for climate change. Uh, and I don't have them in front of me, but I kind of captured them and threw that up there. Now, in the military, one of the things that we've done, because we've learned this lesson before, is, uh, you know, Webster's Dictionary is very subjective depending on culture. So there's actually, most people don't realize this, there's actually a whole other dictionary that we use, uh, the DOD Dictionary, that's intended to take out any subjectivity. So if you're communicating with someone via message traffic, uh, what you're communicating is more clear and concise and, and it removes as much ambiguity as possible. Well, we've seen, uh, we've seen the, the shift, or at least my perception is we've gone from calling it global warming to now climate change. All right. Uh, personally, I think climate change is a little more accurate because it encompasses all the other systems of systems that can interact and cause that. Whereas before it was just global warming. So have, my question to, to you ladies would be, have we adequately defined climate change at the international level? And, and I would think we have not yet. So until we, as a community of communicators, agree internationally on a definition, an unambiguous definition of climate change, I think we're still going to run into obstacles that we otherwise might be able to overcome. I think that's an interesting point. Um, you know, and... And I think the challenge is, of course, that's, you know, internationally, you know, to have a consistent definition across the entire world, you know, that's going to take some time. There's definitely, um, that's a challenge. But I think that even 
now, even when we're doing science communication, even if it's just in like one-to-one interactions or, you know, if we're talking to a small group or we're writing a blog or whatever that we're doing as individually as science communicators, that we can start to say, okay, here's how I'm defining X and being really clear about that. Um, Because I think when we say, okay, this is how I'm defining it, this is how I'm classifying it, this is how I'm talking about it, then that way at least anybody who's having that conversation is talking about the same thing, that you start to establish and agree on one, you know, one scope or one, you know, definition, and that at least you can agree on some basic facts, because that's the starting point is sort of what is it we're discussing? Are we discussing the same thing? And then let's have you know, a continuing dialogue about this and figure out how to build understanding or exchange information or whatever the goal actually is. Exactly, exactly. I think that that's, uh, Mark, one of the reasons that the scientific community shifted from and encouraged everyone to shift from saying global warming to to phrasing it as climate change, because I think they also... Uh, understood that there there is a need to define this thing a little bit more. And when that, that happened, the challenge was those people who, their mission is to do smear campaigns. They said, oh, we didn't uh, believe their global warming message and they couldn't prove it. So they changed the name to climate change and they're in rebranding it as something else. So that actually is used by the climate, for lack of a better word, skeptic community, they use that as a way to bring another argument against the scientific community as a tool to tell people, see, they're not trustworthy. They're changing the way they're saying things because the first time we didn't believe them. I I think you are spot on. Uh, In fact, I did a... uh... I was tasked to do some research on uh, how the Republican Party and I believe Frank Luntz, uh, some some message traffic from him, communications mm. to Republican candidates and how he told them to rephrase, uh, you know, the discussion on that very topic. So I think you're exactly correct. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I felt uh, kind of betrayed by, you know, having considered myself a Republican prior, felt somewhat betrayed by the Republican Party because then those in power were trying to shape my actions outside of scientific fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you read, have you read Merchants of Doubt? I keep telling you to read books. <laughs> in fact, that was a, uh, that was a huge source for my, uh, my blog that you see, I was tasked to write with, uh, for as part of that communications class and what really sparked my interest. So, uh, I watched, uh, uh, Naomi, is that her name? Uh, Naomi, Naomi Rest. Yes. So I watched Naomi at uh, several different venues and, and really got hooked and, and did the research on, on what she spoke to. And that was kind of the thing that solidified and said, okay, I'm going to get into science communication somehow. Uh, I wasn't sure how, I'm not sure what talents I have in the form of science communication, but I'm a big fan of uh, Dr. Oreskes and, uh, and what she had to say. And it, uh, well, it made a significant impact at the individual level for me. Uh, I, uh, I, I became a, a libertarian and, uh, and made a conscious decision to question everything, kind of reaffirming what I was brought up and kind of steered, you know, kind of geared from and now I'm back to the question everything. And you'll see at the bottom of my blog, and I have to give a disclaimer, it's a poorly written blog. I wrote it like an essay paper, so it's quite long. But uh, 
my, my goal is to question everything. And uh, anyone that reads it, to also have them question everything. So what I tried to do in that blog was uh, provide the references that I was speaking to. So, so kind of add some credibility to the topics I was trying to discuss or share. Yeah. So how do you think, what is your suggestion as to how can we um, reach more people like you? I think it's, uh, my, my beliefs are evolving the more I learn. But basically, I think it's the cultural aspect. I think we really need to make a concerted effort to depoliticize uh, the environmental issues because they affect all of us. And we need to approach it in a really, as best we can, sanitary, apolitical method. And we need to be willing to fire shots across the bowels of both parties, uh, regardless of political ideology, and kind of remove ourselves and understand the cultural aspect and bring in more people uh, from within the different cultures that uh, may have insight from growing up within that society. And, and understand cultural nuances. The commercial industry does the same thing for marketing. So why why is the commercial industry you know pick a pick an industry, but they hire people that understand the cultural aspects when they're creating these marketing campaigns? While we're not trying to market, we are trying to communicate. They're both forms of communication. So why aren't we spending uh, at least an equal amount of time trying to find people that understand the, the what would work culturally what communication message would uh, resonate culturally better within each different group yeah you know it would be really cool mark and maria and anybody else who's listening uh that shares you know this a similar experience what would be the top 10 questions that somebody who you know to cultivate skepticism um in whatever it is that you're hearing so what what would be the top 10 questions that you know you can ask yourself to be skeptical um, and then question everything accurately. Well, I guess to set the baseline, uh, having raised two teenagers, uh, I have asked them, uh, has their opinion on anything changed as they've grown and matured? So perhaps step one is to ask people for a baseline. You know, do they still believe the same things they did, for example, when they were teenagers? And if they don't, than to consider the possibility that their their views will continue to change the longer they live. So, unfortunately, we are running out of time for today. But what would be your take home message, and what would you like people to start uh, considering from now on, whether or not they're currently skeptics, or if they have already made a transition into questioning things and and researching. And I just want to acknowledge that what we're asking people to do is pretty hard. We're asking them to be comfortable with ambiguity in relying on science because science never gives us perfect answers. And questioning everything is so important, but it's so hard and exhausting. So I just want to, us to understand, as people who have scientific training, um, we might have been convinced already that this is one of the best ways to approach how do we answer questions in life? How do we approximate truth out there? But um, we need to understand how hard it is to encourage others to do it and really meet them as a human being with similar goals and understand where they're coming from. 
that was a long that's brilliant (laughs) thank you and where do you prefer our listeners to reach out of you where is the best for you to get in touch well you have my twitter contact or i've got the the blog post on uh, wordpress conservative environmentalist on uh, wordpress so feel free to reach out and and comment uh, disagree Uh, i think uh, i think rigorous debate is is what's needed and we we can't stop that thanks again for joining our twitter chat and thanks maria for hosting that oh sorry heather thanks heather for hosting that and thank you all for for joining this podcast and we're looking forward to having you mark again whenever you have something new to share or you want to bounce uh, ideas or share something with our network as well we'd be more than happy to have you again Well, thank you. I'm still learning and I look forward to learning from you ladies and and the rest of the community as time goes on. Thank you. Sherry, how about our next Twitter chat? When would that might be? Uh, Usually we hold it first Tuesday of every month, but it might change. But you usually have it on a Tuesday and Maria is our host uh, next month. So why don't you tell us about it, Maria? Oh, goodness. I will be um, sharing information about that very soon with all the details on Twitter and Instagram. That's what I have to say. (laughs) Yeah, we also do have a newsletter. If you happen to drop by our blog, there is a newsletter sign up where we announce our um, events. If any any, uh, contests we have that also summaries of our previous chats. So Indeed, we'll be sharing links uh, on those as well on our social media. And in the meantime, indeed, make sure you follow us on Twitter at SciComm underscore JC, where you'll be frequently updated on all the cool stuff that is happening within our team. And in the meantime, if you're willing to build your SciComm capacities or you're just interested in the messages that science communicating scientists have, Indeed, stay tuned for our Twitter chats where you can learn all the time new and interesting stuff. Uh, you can read, as Sherry said, the recaps on the Twitter chats on our website at psycom.org. And you can always leave comments and get in touch with us there. And again, thanks everyone for joining for this uh, third episode of the Psycom JC podcast. And if you like it, let us know, drop us a message, share it most importantly with your friends, family, colleagues, whoever you think would be interested and until next time and stay nerdy